and welcome to episode 37 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by John Manuel and Aaron Fitt. John is the editor-in-chief at Baseball America. Aaron, their national writer. You can follow them both on Twitter, John at John Manuel BA and Aaron at Aaron Fitt. That's two T's in Fitt. And of course, find their content at BaseballAmerica.com. John, Aaron, thank you both for taking the time to join the podcast today. And thanks. It's like uh, it's like our college baseball podcast, only with a third person in there. So this is going to be uh, kind of fun. Me and Aaron haven't podcasted in a month. I'll tell you what, though, it's going to be hard for for anyone to live up to to John's uh, standard when it comes to interrupting me and and, and uh, <laughs> throwing in his own his own commentary and know my points. We'll we'll try to get John to interrupt you as much as possible during this podcast. I know there's been a lot going on this month with the draft and the signing period and your release of the midseason top 50, but we have to start with the Astros and the mess that is their 2014 draft. They failed to sign their top pick, the number one overall pick in Brady Aiken. Uh, John, what happened here? Boy, I mean, where to start? I think fundamentally, the basics are we had our first number one overall pick failed to sign in more than 30 years. I mean, it's only happened twice before in 49 years of baseball drafts. So a lot had to happen to make history like that. A lot had to not happen. I think fundamentally you had a lack of trust between the Astros front office and Brady Aiken and his representatives. And once you had that initial deal for $6.5 million be agreed to, and then you had the physical and the Astros back out of it, I, we obviously don't have the medical reports, so we can't know how legitimate it was for them to back out of it. But once they backed out of it, and the way they did it, they clearly lost the trust of the Aiken side. And I think it's pretty hard to repair trust when you don't do that in person. Tried to do it on the phone from Mexico. And Jeff Luno clearly did not repair that breach. And as a result, he didn't sign his first-round pick. He didn't sign his fifth-round pick. He didn't sign his 21st-round pick, which he wanted to sign. And if Jacob Nix wins his grievance... He might lose two draft picks next year, which would be, I think the chances of that are fairly small, but that would be the biggest failure by a club in draft history in my mind. So I think this has a potential to be really, really big negative for the Astros. It has a potential to be a big negative for Brady Aiken. It has a potential to be a pretty big negative for Excel Sports Management and Casey Close, who represents him. So I don't see a lot of winners here, Aaron. Not not for me. It was a pretty big mess. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I mean, and... and... The thing about it, too, is, is Knicks in particular, I think, uh, would have been perfectly content going to UCLA, you know, if they hadn't hit his number, which they, they had an agreement. Um, and, and once you agree to terms, you really kind of burn your bridges um, when it comes to your collegiate eligibility. And so, you know, now these guys are in a tough spot. I mean, if you're Aiken, you're the number one overall pick. Um, I don't think you want to go wait three years to be drafted again when you've got this kind of money on the table. But if you're Knicks, you know, and you're a fifth rounder and Really, I, I think that a lot of clubs wouldn't have been willing to give him $1.5 million this year. A lot of clubs see it in an uneven spring. Um, he's a guy that, uh, you know, he has upside. He's got a great body. The arm really works. But uh, I think the Astros were probably the high-water team on him. And so, you know, he, he probably could have benefited from going to UCLA and, and spending three years under John Savage and maybe becoming a, a first-round pick in, in three years. But now he's kind of in this situation where, well, am I going to file a grievance? Am I going to uh, go to a junior college? Um, can I go to UCLA and be eligible? We don't know. And, right. and right now we're still waiting for answers on that. I'll tell you what. Um, the Astros, I believe, were also the high-water team on Mac Marshall, who began in the summer of 2013 as one of the top pitchers, if not the top left-hander in the class of 2014. 
But that doesn't mean much when the calendar is 2013. It was a long time between last summer and this year's draft. And in that time, Mac Marshall's draft stock slid, and he didn't fill out a lot physically. His fastball's fairly straight. He's not a real physical kid. He's got a good changeup. He's got a feel for pitching. He does have three pitches. Outside of the changeup, I can't find a scout who gives him plus grades on anything else that he does. And they were willing to pay a lot of money for Mac Marshall, who's now at LSU. And basically, they blew up their draft uh, at the top because they wouldn't go over $5 million for Brady Aiken, but they would come up to $5 million. So it was, overall, it was either over a million and a half dollars or the chance to get Mac Marshall. And I just, I don't see that. I don't see why they did that. I, I struggle to find out why. And I've emailed Jeff Luno and I haven't heard back from him, so I can't ask him why either. But he hasn't really given any public comments that I've seen to any other reporters to indicate why they did that, why they blew up their draft over a million and a half dollars and maybe the chance to get Mac Marshall. Have you seen anything, Aaron? Because I haven't. I mean, it, it seems like it seems like, you know, they believe maybe they genuinely believe maybe we shouldn't be quite so cynical. I think there's a, a tendency to say, you know, Aiken was healthy in his last outing. Um, you know, there, there, maybe he, he is asymptomatic. Right. Um, and so maybe the Astros are just trumping up these concerns, but maybe the Astros are genuinely concerned that, that he's going to break down. But, but that said, the fact that they were willing to give him $5 million kind of undermines their concern. So, I mean, if, you know, if you're willing to pay that much money for a player, you know, how concerned can you really be? I think they have legitimate concerns, <laughs> but the, we, the market for a pitcher with Tommy John surgery was already established, and the, and the Astros are part of that market, market. And that's Jeff Hoffman, ninth overall, $3 million in change from the Blue Jays. He's signed for slot. Jeff Hoffman's three years older. He's right-handed, not left-handed. He doesn't have Brady Aiken's track record. He didn't dominate in college. Brady Aiken dominated. He's three years younger in high school. And this guy's already had surgery. Brady Aiken, as you said, was asymptomatic. So I'm not even questioning whether he has a legitimate injury or not. Again, I don't have the Astros medicals. But Jeff Hoffman got more than $3 million, and I think it's easy to say that Brady Aiken's a much better prospect, or a better prospect. I didn't say much better, but better, and that he went eight spots ahead. And $5 million seems like the floor. And if you're willing to give him $5 million, albeit at the last minute, I think you have to be willing to go higher to get that deal done because the alternative is you get less, and the worst-case scenario is a nightmare. And if Jacob Nix wins his grievance and they lose two picks next year, that's a nightmare scenario, and to me, that's worth a million and a half dollars to avoid that nightmare scenario. If they lose the two picks next year, would they lose their natural draft pick and the compensation pick for losing Aiken? How would that work? That's my understanding. I'm trying to get that confirmed with MLB. I've got an email out to uh, ML, uh, someone at MLB, but today's the competitive balance draft, so we're, as we're recording this, I'm, so I think they're a little tied up, but um, competitive balance lottery, I should say. But yeah, that's my understanding of uh, reading the rules and talking about this with a couple other people in the industry. That's what they think would happen as well. So um, obviously that's contingent on the grievance, and the grievance hasn't even been filed yet. So that's just, that's to me, that's the worst case scenario is the Astros go way over their pool and have to forfeit two picks. But I mean, I think the, I think the Astros know those contingencies. These guys are smart guys, and they're and for the most part, they're very prepared. So in my impression of them under Jeff Luno, and they know that that's the worst-case scenario, and yet he wasn't willing to go over $5 million. So obviously they really did worry about the risk. 
Aaron, how could the Astros have handled this entire situation better? It's a good question. I mean, I, I think personally, I, I think what they should have done is just bitten the bullet and said, hey, we had an agreement for six and a half million dollars. You know, they made their play. They tried to they tried to uh, get Aiken signed for less so they could get those other two guys. It didn't work out. I think that what they should have done right before the deadline is say, fine, you guys win. Six and a half it is. Um, I, I just think you can't risk this this nightmare scenario that John's talking about. You know, and then other than that, I mean, I don't know. Maybe they maybe they just shouldn't have um, they, they shouldn't have haggled so much to begin with. I mean, when when you had a deal for six point five with a guy who's not hurt, you know, come on, just let's get it over with. The money's in their budget, and if you don't spend it, you don't get players. It's not like you can you can, you're going to allocate those resources elsewhere, as Jim Crane said. So, to me, the process was a flawed process by the Astros. I think that their reaction to crisis was not the proper reaction, which I think you evaluate what your scenarios are and you try to avoid the worst case. And the worst case is still in play for them. And that's that's a real problem to me. And I don't think Casey Close and Brady Aiken handled this one flawlessly either. It's very unusual to see Casey Close's name in a story quoted. That's really unusual. This is a guy who's pretty high profile. He's been Derek Jeter's agent for 20-some years. Uh, this guy was a star player. Uh, you know, he played at the University of Michigan, was an All-American. Uh, he might have been our college player of the year. If he wasn't, he was somebody else's. He was a great player in college. And he's well-connected in baseball. He's been around a long time as an agent. I mean, even his wife is Gretchen Carlson on Fox News. People know he's, he's a high-profile guy. So this is not you – know, this wasn't a be-all, end-all for him financially. He didn't have to get the Brady Aiken deal done. You know, this guy negotiated Clayton Kershaw's deal. I think he's had a good year. So I think that they both, it seemed like Casey Close kind of took it personally. Yeah. Um, and the way he was dealt with here. And I think that, that so when that's happening, when that relationship's breaking down, I think that those negotiations, these things are ultimately all about relationships there. And it's not just about money. And it feels like Jeff Luno and Casey Close just did not have a, enough of a relationship here to make this deal happen when obstacles were put in their path. To me, if it's true, what, what Luna has said in, in the press, that um, that Close never responded to his, his offers on deadline that day. His responses were no, no, and that's it. That he never made a counteroffer. Right. Um, to me, that's irresponsible. I'm, I'm with you, Aaron. I mean, you, you know, we're talking about a, a high school kid. We're talking about 5 or $6 million here. you, you got to at least try to get a deal done. And it sure seems like, if, if you take Luno's word for it, they didn't try to get a deal done on deadline day. It sounds like the only deal that would be done would be completely on their terms. There wasn't going to be any compromise. If that's the case, I, I do think that's a mistake by Excel Sports fans, but that's not really representing his player necessarily, unless those are the player's orders. Again, we don't know. Maybe the player and his family said, look, we're not signing with this team, period. But, um, again, we are only getting one side of the story. Casey has declined via text message to comment further to us. Um, and then the other comment here has been from the union saying these two players should have been signed and we're looking into it. And that's very unusual for the union to poke its head into the draft. And part of it, I think, is this situation. Part of it, I think, is Tony Clark's the new MLBPA head. And uh, the union is perceived as being weak right now. Uh, that's not just true in baseball. That's true in American society. <laughs> I think the union might use this as an occasion to try to reassert itself as not being weaker than base the baseball union has been in the past. But when Michael Weiner passed away, when he died, and the obits were written about him, 
Some of the companion stories were like, boy, the baseball union's in trouble. It's weaker than it's been in 40 years. I think this might be a, a case of the, of the union trying to use this situation to reassert itself as well. I don't think that all this is just about Brady Aiken. I'm not saying he's a pawn, but he may be an unfortunate, or Jacob Nix, these guys might be kind of, uh, I think they're being used by a lot of people here, potentially. I don't know for sure, but there's a possibility that they are, this is a situation that's being, uh, where people are going to take this situation and use it to their ends to prove something or that kind of thing. And what we all really wish, we just want to see Brady Aiken and Jacob Nix play baseball. So, but it gets a lot more complicated. Do you think Casey Close was refusing to negotiate because he genuinely believed the Astros were violating rules and were ethically doing something wrong? Do we know for sure that the Astros didn't violate any rules here? We certainly don't know. And I, I can't imagine what, what, what his other motivation would be. I, I don't think a guy who's been a professional for 20 years and has the track record Casey Close has suddenly does him like that out of spite. You know, I, that just doesn't sound plausible, Aaron. So to me... He clearly has a strong belief. You know, when you're an evaluator in baseball, whether you, you evaluate talent as an agent, whether you evaluate as a scout or as a general manager, or even as a player, you have to have conviction in your evaluation. Certainly, Casey Close's comments indicate he has strong conviction that he believed the Astros wronged his client and that he can prove it and do better by his client by winning that process than by signing with an organization that he doesn't trust and that he clearly didn't feel his client, Brady Aiken, should be a part of. So I think, I, I think that's well said. And it also raises the question, we're talking about $1.5 million here. And Casey Close, you said he, he represents Jeter and Clayton Kershaw. He's one of the prominent agents in the sport. Is burning a relationship with Casey Close worth $1.5 million? Is having Casey Close basically hint that he may discourage any potential clients from signing there in the future? That even potential draftees, if he puts them in position to just not sign with the Astros, isn't that alone worth the $1.5 million? It might be. I mean, you know, you just... Ultimately, I do think the, the agent works for the player. And if a, you're a player and Casey Close represents you and you go, well, you could go, say say the Astros do have the pick next year, and he has a client who could be their, their target at number two overall. And I, I, if you're that client, are you going to really say, well, that's the second largest bonus pool or the largest bonus pool, and I can make the most money there, but Casey says don't play for the Astros. Is that really going to... So I don't know how plausible it is that Casey Close is going to really steer that many players. I don't know how many players you'd really lose there. You know, the White Sox, until this year, had not signed a Scott Boris player as an amateur since 1990. And they won a World Series in the interim in 2005. So, you know, they had some pretty successful years there where they weren't signing Boris clients. So I don't know how much that really... There are a lot of avenues for talent. But I just think it's... This has been... I don't know if it's been $1.5 million worth of bad publicity... But I mean, if I'm again, the point I made on our own podcast on Saturday was, you know, to me, uh, you're Jim Crane. Jeff Luna's run three drafts for you, picking first overall, and you're one for three. <laughs> There's no way this one's a success. And last year, Mark Appel, I'm not writing him off completely, but he's off to a terrible start, a historically bad start. It's Brian Bullington esque for a number one draft pick college right hander. That's not I mean, Brian Bullington. You don't want to get comp to Brian Bullington. So Carlos Correa is a nice-looking prospect. In their 2012 draft, well, they executed it pretty well. But the last two since then haven't been well executed. So even if the Astros don't lose this grievance that hasn't even been filed yet, 
So even if they have the number two pick and one of the other top five picks next year, and they have $20 million to play with in the draft and have the biggest signing pool, would you want, if you're the owner, Jim Crane, doesn't Jeff Luna have to make the case to you that he deserves to be the guy to spend all that money and to make those picks? Because he's blown the last two. If I'm that owner, I don't know that I want him making those picks anymore. And, and even and even with Correa, and Correa's a really good prospect. Like you said, he's a very good prospect. But you're picking number one overall. I just think you got to take the best player and not get cute. You know, is it really worth getting Rio Ruiz? And if it means you pass up on Byron Buxton, right? Buxton's the best guy. That's who they should have taken. That's the that is a strong industry consensus. As much as people like Carlos Correa, they love fall down love Byron Buxton. And so the Astros have been three drafts in a row where they have had picked number one overall and they haven't gotten the best player in that draft. And I don't think that's a good track record. And that's a question, too, with Buxton was sort of the consensus, number one, and they took Correa to try and get other picks, which they did. They got Ruiz and uh, Lance McCullers, I believe. But would Minnesota do that trade? Would Minnesota take Correa, McCullers, and Ruiz for Buxton? I mean, Aaron, uh, not Aaron, J.J. Cooper was up in the Midwest League last year doing the big feature on Byron Buxton in midseason, and he asked that question because they were all those players were in that league. He saw Quad Cities, I think it was, play Cedar Rapids or whatever the teams are called, whatever the affiliates were. I think, I think that's right, though. He saw those two teams play, uh, I think, th- multiple times. And he asked the scouts in the Midwest League, and they were like, no. And they all love Correa. And they're like, no way But I trade Buxton for any of those three guys. So the only guy in the minor leagues, to me, you could trade Buxton for is Chris Benson. Uh, Chris Benson. Chris Bryant. I'm showing my age by saying Chris Benson. <laughs> but Chris Bryant, just because he is an infielder and he has a game-changing power, I wouldn't trade Buxton for any other minor leaguer, personally. I mean, like... But really, again, Bryant's the only guy to even think about it. And I still don't think I, I certainly wouldn't do it straight up. I would, but the, I know but, you but you know I'm the high man on Bryant. You are. <laughs> I want to go back to Aiken for a second because the Astros did find an abnormality in his medicals with his MRI, and it's been very vague. We didn't know the specifics, but it seems to be something different than just a standard Tommy John procedure. All right, Dickey's name has been mentioned. Maybe he has a very thin ligament or whatever it is. But did Aiken know this was coming, or was he shocked to find this out too? That's the number one question I would ask uh, Casey Close is, what was your pre-draft medical information on Brady Aiken? It appears that they were a little surprised that there was an abnormality found. And I don't know how routine it is for players to have pre-draft MRIs on their own. But um, I know of two players this year who did. And one we reported on a lot, Kyle Freeland. The other one, I want to double check and see that the rules were followed. (laughs) But, I mean, like Kyle Freeland, there was questions about the Evansville left-hander. And so he went and got his own pre-draft MRI, and then they distributed it to all 30 teams via the Major League Scouting Bureau. So everybody had information on him. He wound up signing with his hometown Rockies. He's originally from Colorado for a discount. Not a, but not a uh, Tim Stauffer or R.A. Dickey discount. So, first of all, we really don't know what the medicals say. Only the Astros know. Those haven't been made public. We've seen reports of a ligament issue. I've seen one report that talked about bone issue. So, if it's a ligament, if it's a smaller than uh, usual ligament, I'm not Will Carroll or a doctor, nor do I play one on a podcast. But from what I know from reporting on Tommy John surgery is, a smaller-than-average ligament would be no issue. You replace the ligament. That's why it's ligament replacement surgery. You would replace it with any other part of the body where they generally do these surgeries from. Sometimes they use a piece of the Achilles tendon to replace your ligament. 
often it is just a, a tendon from your wrist. Like if he's left-handed, it would be a tendon from his right wrist. And tendons are actually even a little stronger than ligaments. So in a lot of times, that's why sometimes they, they have such a high success rate. So if it's a smaller than normal ligament, that would increase your potentially your risk, I suppose, of Tommy John surgery or ligament replacement surgery. But I don't think that would make it harder for the surgery. The bone stuff would. If you had smaller bones, because they literally drill this new ligament, this replacement, into place in your bones. So you do need additional places to replace the ligament. Uh, you know, and, and so that, that would be an issue. But again, we don't know. And Casey Close seems to contest that there is even an abnormality. So uh, he uses the word asymptomatic. He's pretty careful in his language that he used with Ken Rosenthal. He certainly didn't deny that there was something found in the MRI. Right. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, very, it's obviously very complicated. And that's a big unknown, to quote uh, Donald Rumsfeld, that's an unknown unknown on that one. So I'm not even sure that everyone would agree, that both parties would agree there's an abnormality. But at the very least, it's an unknown known. There's some kind of problem, but we don't know how severe the problem is because no one's reporting it. And I will give the Astros that credit. At least the medical report hasn't leaked out, and that would be a violation of law. So, you know, they but, got hacked with their ground control. At least they didn't get this hacked. But it sounded like like Casey Close was livid that any details about this leaked out to, to John Heyman about, uh, you know, the report about the, the, yeah. the smaller ligament or whatever it is. So, I mean, the fact that anything leaked out also is deterioration of, of goodwill here. Aaron, I want to ask you about what options Aiken and Knicks have going forward. What can they do now? Well, it's, you know, it's something that I, I, uh, I'm writing about today on our website. And basically, they can either A, pursue this grievance path and see where it goes. And maybe they can do that in conjunction with the other options. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, can they go to UCLA? Maybe. You know, the, the NCAA, you know, shed a little bit of light on that um, this week in, in an exchange I had with some of those people. And it sounds like just by agreeing to terms, they did, in fact, put their eligibility at risk. But there are procedures in place where they can kind of appeal or they can um, you know, they can basically fight for their eligibility and, and extenuating circumstances, um, you know, can, can contribute to that. And, you know, the other, the other part of it is the no agent rule. I mean, as we all know. Um, get ready. Aaron's <laughs> going to get wound up. As we all know, all these guys violate that rule every year. And, and um, the, the NCAA, you know, only really pen, penalizes the players that, that get turned in for it, really, to put it, to put it bluntly. Now, in this case... For you know, you had, you had a, a bunch of varying media reports. Somewhere, um, you know, Jim Crane, I think last week had said something about how he was talking with how they were talking with Casey Close about right. these players. And Luno was careful to say, "No, we've only talked directly to the to the families because he was trying to, you know." Again, I respect Jeff for that. He didn't have yeah, to do that. No, that's right. But then, I, then after the deadline passed, he he made it clear that well, I tried calling Casey Close three times and. You know, so he kind of threw that out the window and said, "Yeah, we're talking directly to the agent here." Yeah. Um, but uh, that said, you know, this is this is another key point. In 2007, when Andy Oliver had his landmark case against the NCAA for the no agent rule, at that time, the default punishment for violating the no agent rule was basically just indefinite ineligibility. You just you, you're out. Nowadays, it seems like that's shifted, and and you had the the kid from Wichita State, uh, Albert Minnis, I think. Oh, yeah. I think he got about a 40% of the season suspension when who he violated the, it. Who was the left-hander for Nebraska? 
That's Logan another one. Ehlers. Logan Ehlers. You know, none, none, none of these guys got permanent ineligibility. And then last year, of course, with Wetzler uh, from Oregon State, when the when the the thing with the Phillies happened, he was suspended for what thirty percent of the year or three weeks yeah. is what it was basically. And so, you know, that was a very minor violation that Wetzler had. I mean, it, basically, the only thing they could prove was that the agent was in the room at one point while Wetzler was negotiating. You know, I mean, that's th- this this is a, a much more blatant, I think, case where let's face it. Close was doing the negotiating here. I'm like, right. we're not going to fool anybody. I don't think the NCAA will be fooled on that point either. So who knows what the punishment will be? The point is, there there are risks. If they go to UCLA, there are a number of potential pitfalls to their eligibility, and maybe it's not worth it to them. It may not be worth it to UCLA. <laughs> maybe Say not. UCLA really wants them. They've got to reallocate scholarship money from guys where UCLA is not dumb. And it's June, and they see these reports that these guys are signing. Well, that's that scholarship money is being reallocated to other players. Those two guys suddenly show up on campus. That scholarship money is being taken away by other from other players, and they can only go to twenty five percent is the minimum. Yeah. So that would be quite. And so UCLA would have to go through all that rigmarole, and then potentially get to the seeds, and then they say, "Say not so fast, my friends," and have those players on the sideline. So that's not a process I don't think UCLA wants to go through unless they know for sure those guys will be eligible. So that's so there's a lot of moving pieces to all this. And, and ultimately, I think they both wind up at junior college. If I were a betting man, that's what I think will happen. Unless, of course, the grievance thing allows them to sign somehow. And the grievance feels like it's going to be hard to win if there's nothing written. If there's not a written contract or a promise, basically, from the club, not sure how that deal I mean, the fact How that you win that grievance, Darren. The fact that they both had physicals, does that play into it? I mean, because usually you don't have a physical until after you've agreed to terms, right? Certainly, that's the way it's done, which is a dumb, dumb system. When you talk <laughs> to baseball scouts, that's their least favorite thing, is where they're like, we talk to NBA and NFL people, and they're like, well, what does this medical say? And they're like, oh, we don't get that until after we sign them. And they're like, what? You don't get a medical until after you sign them? I mean, like, you really just think about how anachronistic so many parts of baseball's draft are. One of them being that it takes place during the college season, which is me and Aaron's biggest problem. Not with only it. during the season, but while games are being played. I mean, that to me is, that, I'm not, you don't need to rant. This is something I'm going to rant about. Rant. You got the draft on what? Was it Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Yeah, that's right. You got kids on the field in Super Regionals while the draft is going on on Friday and Saturday. You know, this is an easy thing to fix. All you got to do is move it up three days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, where there's no games. I mean, like they, it used to be. If they, if, they, if they cared, if they gave any regard to the players, that's what they would do. It, it's, it's ridiculous. There's so many aspects of baseball's draft that are an anachronism. What else would you fix about the draft? Well, there are a couple easy ones in my mind. First, as you move it into July, and sorry, short season leagues, pound it. I don't care that we neuter the New York Penn League live deal with it you know that's all i can say for that moving to july when the college and high school seasons are over you have a pre-draft combine in a dome stadium the week before the draft you know what if players have to pay their own way to get there pay your own way to get there uh you cut the draft to 10 15 20 rounds max i would go 15 personally and in my mind you go to the draft pre-draft combine and you know what you don't even have to have one if they need to have them by region three or four you could do that too Guess what? We've got a ballpark here in Cary, North Carolina, that's run by USA Baseball that MLB can use whenever it wants. you got ballparks all over the state of Florida you could use whenever you want. You want to turn Dodger Town into a complex town? It's just sitting there in Vero Beach waiting for it. you got complexes all over Arizona. 
you can't tell me they can't figure one out in the middle of the country. I mean, they've got RBI, uh, Urban Youth Academy in, in Houston. You could do one. They're building in New Orleans. They're all over the country that they could go figure this out and have them be regional if you have to. If you want to be in the draft, you come to the combine, you get evaluated, you get a pre-draft medical, you do your pre-draft psych tests. I, I know there are obstacles that have to be overcome with NCA eligibility, but darn it, do it. Work on it. And I think it can be done. And if, you, if, and if the pre-draft combine, if you opt out of it, that's, fi that's fine. You don't have to do that. If you don't do the medical, that's fine. But when you, if you don't do the medical and this kind of situation comes up, you're kind of at the team of mercy. I mean, I just, it's their cartel, you know, uh, the players do have rights, but ultimately there's only one, this is a monopoly. If you want to go play professional baseball in the United States, you can go play in any league team and make a lot less money and play in a lot lesser competition, or you can join their cartel. And as long as the cartel isn't completely screwing these guys, which of course they do in a lot of ways, but they do pay them a lot of money to play. So there are rewards for being part of that cartel. I, I, I wish Major League Baseball just thought of the draft as a priority and as a marketing opportunity. And a, a combine would be a marketing opportunity. A shorter draft so that every pick means more would be more marketable. You can't market a 40-round draft. Who gives a damn when Johnny Manziel's getting drafted in the mid-20 rounds? I mean, that tells you that how, how useless the long draft is. So it's not like any team that they're signing 40 players. A couple teams signed 35, one of them the Astros. But, and they trade about 30 of those guys that they could have signed Knicks. I mean, not Knicks, uh, uh, Aiken and Knicks. So uh, I, the, the whole system is just one anachronism after another. There's a, so much inertia. And uh, next year's the 50th uh, anniversary of the first draft. We've got two more years, I think, in this CBA. I really hope uh, in the next CBA there's some kind of pre-draft combine and the draft gets moved later after the College World Series. At the very least, not during college and high school baseball seasons. I just think that's unfair to the teams and the players. But I know there are a lot of scouts who disagree they they think that this, the process goes on long enough and it's too long so um, but f to make an informed multi-million dollar choice you should have a medical pre-draft medical exam and that's just i think that's just a modern that would be a modern draft so that's my rant sorry and not as a, not as passionate as aaron's well and i think that the draft could be mlb's flagship day outside of the playoffs outside of the world series outside of the championship series i think it could be their flagship day but it's a long way away from that one of the things i think they could do which would be a fix in the aiken situation is to allow it to trade draft picks there is some other team that would be willing to pay aiken 6.5 if houston were allowed to sign and trade him they would still keep their slot bonuses the slot bonuses wouldn't get changed there so teams wouldn't be trading the bonuses but if they could trade aiken for 6.5 i think you would have many teams that would take him for that if they just allowed teams to trade draft picks, it would also create a lot more interest in that situation as well. What do you think about that? That's certainly possible. I've always been against trading draft picks, mainly because you don't need it in baseball. The other sports trade draft picks because they don't have minor leaguers to trade. And baseball has minor leaguers. So that's, you know, I know there are other reasons why draft picks haven't been traded. And your situation, that's the most, that's the best argument I've ever heard yet for trading of draft picks. But I just don't feel like it's needed. I don't feel like trading of draft picks is the reason why the NBA draft is popular. I feel the NBA draft is popular because you watch a guy in college and then you get to see him play in the NBA. To me, that's the biggest reason why the NBA draft is popular, not because the draft picks can be traded. And in fact, trade, draft picks are traded so willy-nilly in the NBA, A, it's hard to trade, keep track of them, and B, you have a rule where you 
can't trade your draft pick in consecutive years. So there's some teams that can't trade a draft pick again until like their 2019 or 2020 draft pick. So, so there, that, it's fraught with some problems. You're like I said, your argument's the best one I've heard for it. But in my mind, it's it's not. That's not going to be the key that makes the baseball draft more popular. And I don't just don't think it's necessary. Just again, those other sports don't have minor leaguers. So baseball has assets to trade besides draft picks that those other leagues don't have. The trading of the draft picks I don't think would make the draft more popular, but I do think it would make it more efficient. What I do think would make the draft more popular, this is my crazy draft theory, is that what's always bothered me about the draft, and the draft is put in in every sport to control costs, and that it evens out talent uh, placement is a side benefit, but the draft is put in place to control cost. That's correct. It's unfortunate that teams are rewarded for essentially trying to lose games. The Astros and the Cubs, for that matter, have made no secret they are basically trying to lose games to get as many top draft picks as they can in their system. MLB should have a problem with that. They should have a problem with teams essentially trying to lose, or at least putting a team on the field they know can't win. I think the whole first and second round should be done by a lottery. That the World Series winner should have as as much of a chance at the number one pick as the worst team in baseball. And they should do a lottery for the first round, and they should do a lottery for the second round. And then rounds three through whatever, it's in reverse order of standings. So the Astros would have the number one pick three through 40, however many rounds there are in the draft. But the first two rounds, the Red Sox or the Cardinals might have as much a chance as the number one pick, and they could do the lottery during the World Series or the winter meetings, and that would create such a huge interest in the draft if knowing any team could end up with that number one pick. I think that would be huge. Uh, that's, that is a radical idea. Uh, I wouldn't be opposed to a draft lottery coming to baseball to dis- discourage tanking as the NBA did for a while. Um, obviously, the NBA has like a weighted lottery now, and you know the Cavaliers have won the first pick three times in the last four years, and all that mess. I think your proposal is a little too radical. I think that there actually has been. I think the Astros have actually been punished for tanking, and they've been punished by their own fans. Their fans, to their credit, in my mind, have shown more savvy than the Cubs fans, because Cubs fans still go. The Cubs lose; they've lost for a hundred years. They still go. They still draw like crazy. I get it. I've been to Wrigley. It's fun. But they, those fans reward losing. And they've done that for 100 years. And I'll give the Astros fans some credit. Not only do they not go to the games, because their attendance really plummeted the last couple of years, <laughs> they don't watch on TV. There were games last year in September where it was like nobody watched. And there's not a clamor for getting the Astros on basic cable where they had this cable impasse in uh, Houston. So that's how the Astros are being punished. They're being punished in the pocketbook for losing. So again, this is not stratomatic. Tanking actually is having ramifications in Houston. Their fans realize they're paying major league prices for a minor league team. And they've responded by not watching and not going. And they've invested their hope in this farm system. And now they've had the rug pulled out from under them by Jeff Luno and that team's inability to consummate this deal with Brady Aiken. So that's going to bite them too. Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right. It's, a, it's, a, it's tanking is bad, but tanking is enabled in one market. It's not being enabled in the other. And I give the Astros fans some credit for realizing that's a minor league operation right there. And that was a minor league, big league team. They held back George Springer. They held back Jonathan Singleton. Their fans are punishing the owners and the, the front office. 
the only way they really can right now, which is in the pocketbook, and I think it's going to be effective. And, and I think that's another reason why this whole thing with Knicks is such a catastrophe is because if you're going to do this, <laughs> you can't wait another year and get nothing for it. Correct. I you mean, cannot it's just, keep kicking the can down the road. Oh, boy. I mean, you know, that, so that's the thing is maybe for another team, okay, we didn't get our guy done. We'll, we'll make a pick next year. The Blue Jays last year didn't sign Phil Bickford at 10. Fine. You know, you get, get another chance next year. You get two picks in the top 11. But if you're the Astros and your whole deal here for the last three years is, well, we're, you know, we're going to tank. We're going to rebuild through the draft. And then you screw it up like this and you got to wait another year to reap any benefits from it. it. You can't afford to do that. Completely agree. I think my biggest problem with this situation, though, is unless MLB does the nuclear option on the Astros and takes away their two picks because of the Knicks situation, the Astros are going to get the number two pick in the draft next year, and they might end up with the first and second picks because they might end up with the worst record. They will essentially have the ability to replace Aiken's talent or upside, even if it's a year late, while Aiken and Knicks are essentially screwed. They are not going to be allowed to play pro ball this year. They may never see a bonus like they were offered. They may lose their college eligibility. The system in place, which is not the fault of the players or the team in this matter, but the system is rewarding the team here and penalizing the players. And that just seems fundamentally wrong. Well, as you said, uh, any draft, especially baseball's draft, um, was specifically put in to rein in signing bonuses. When you had a 1964 Rick Reichert out of the University of Wisconsin getting $200,000 to sign, twice as much as any major league player was making at the time. Twice as much as Mickey Mantle was making in 1964. <laughs> I'm not even Bob Costas, and I can tell you that Mickey Mantle in 1964 was better than Rick Reichert. And, you know, you don't have to be a brain surgeon to know how stupid that is. That would be like a, ma- a player, that would be like if Brady Aiken had signed for $70 million. That's twice what Clayton Kershaw's contract's going to pay him at the peak of this contract. It's $35 million a year, and he's the best left-handed pitcher in baseball. So just just think about that. That's where baseball was in 1964. So it makes perfect sense they instituted a draft to stop that tomfoolery. And so 13 years later, 1977, you had Harold Baines, the number one pick in the draft, signing for 40 grand. So they had kept their bonuses down pretty well. You have to go to 1989, I think it is, 1988, Andy Bennis for the first pick in the draft to get more than Rick Reichard got in 1964. So their draft was very effective at holding down bonuses. Then all of a sudden, it stopped being as effective. But still, you had guys signing for more in 1998 when they were free agents. Travis Lee got $10 million. Matt White, as a free agent, high school pitcher, got $10.2 million in 1996 when baseball was probably like a $2 billion industry in revenues or $3 billion. Now it's around $8 billion. And so they've held the bonuses down. But the unintended consequence of this system, the intended consequence was to hold bonuses down especially for star players, to avoid Steven Strasburg getting $7.5 million as a bonus, $15 million and change as a guaranteed contract. Major League Baseball wanted to stop that, and they've succeeded at that. But the unintended consequence is that there is a motivation put in for teams to find, if you find the medical that's a little shady, that you can ding the player because of the medical, and that is why there's this lack of trust in this situation and that the Aiken side does not feel like there's really a problem that they should be dinged for. And they agreed to six and a half million. The player's asymptomatic. We're not signing for less than that. They didn't compromise because they don't feel like they should have. And, and I, again, I, I believe that for them, perception is reality. The perception is the Astros are trying to pull a fast one based on the medical. And that medical, uh, that this whole slotting thing is what, again, one pick is uh, 
you know, tie to the other and you can't go over your pool and all this stuff. So there's this motivation for a team to find something in the medical because then you can sign the player for less and then you can sign Mac Marshall. And that's, that is the unintended consequence of this system. It basically is motivation for a team to find something wrong with the medical. I mean, that's just every time the MLB has changed the draft rules, there's been an un, to hold bonuses down, there's been an unintended consequence. When they first instituted slotting, and uh, you know, players still sign for over slot. Why? Because teams want talent. When they put in a deadline, <clears throat> deadline, a August fifteenth deadline, and the Pirates didn't get a deal done with Pedro Alvarez, they extended the deadline. They just signed him after the deadline. And Frank Coonley was working in Major League Baseball's office. He started the deadline. The next year, he's working in Pittsburgh. He broke his own rule that he made. You know, so <laughs> they always have unintended consequences whenever they try to limit bonuses. And Usually, the unintended consequence has been that people find a way around those rules and the players still get the money. Now, the unintended consequence is actually like, this time I bit the team. Because by trying to take advantage of that, uh, this, this system, the Astros got bitten and they didn't come up with the players. And so that's why I think the system will change. But it, it is a, no one has found a way around this system yet to get, like, I'm surprised the Boris Corporation has not found a way around it. They always found a way around it in the old systems. They always found a way, oh, if we just wait till the last minute, we'll sign for overslot and all this stuff, you know. But in this system with the hard caps on spending, no one's found a way around that yet. And uh, the situation led to something that, this was an unintended consequence. I don't think Major League Baseball intended for teams to potentially exploit a medical so they could sign an extra player and standard their cap. But that's what's alleged here. And that, that is not what anyone intended with these draft rules. Their only intention was, as you said, was to hold bonuses down. And I, that's, you know, to me, I'm actually, as Aaron could tell you, I don't really believe in the free market, but the free market actually works for the draft. Let the, put the dollar sign on that muscle, let the team decide what the talent is worth to them, and go. In my mind, that works better in a draft. I like the draft a lot better back in the day when there weren't bonus caps. I do love the deadline. Love the signing deadline, but um, you could have the draft. So you could have on that All-Star week, Futures game Monday and Home Run Derby at night. Uh, Tuesday could be the All-Star game. Wednesday could be the draft for two days, Wednesday and Thursday, and then Friday games are again. But if you have the draft a day after the All-Star game and for two days and it's in the dead of summer, nothing else is going on, I would be a lot of fun. Maybe it wouldn't be fun for the teams to not focus on the All-Star game and have to worry about their draft, but I, I think it'd be, it would be a hoot. It'd be a great week. Aaron, I want to ask you quickly before we wrap it up about Mark Appel. While we're piling on the Astros, uh, Mark <laughs> Appel, last year's overall number one in the draft, has really struggled. He has an ERA over 10 in single A. What's going on and what's wrong with Mark Appel so far? Well, I, I think, to be honest with you, John's probably a better person to answer that question than I am, but I, I can tell you that, you know, last year heading into the draft, he was a consensus top three guy. And you could put him really in any order, and most people wouldn't have argued with you. I had Bryant number one. Baseball America had John Gray number one. But Aaron, Aaron did have Chris Bryant number one. He was number one on the fifth board. I can vouch for Aaron. But we all had a pal, <laughs> we all had a pal in the top three. I mean, he was a consensus, really good talent, you know. And and um, plenty of people had a pal number one on their board. So it's not like the Astros went were trying to get cute with that pick. I think they just chose the wrong guy. But uh, as far as what's gone wrong with him, John, I'm sure you've got more insight into this than I do. Everything. Everything's gone wrong. The biggest critique of Mark Appel as an amateur was people critique the makeup. 
And by makeup, I would say that the scarlet letter S was worn by Mark Appel for some scouts. They thought he was soft. Not all of them, but a lot of them. I remember talking with our former colleague, Jim Callis, about this. And we agreed, I think you agreed with me here on this, Aaron. How can you say that about Mark Appel when the guy turned down $3 million from the Pirates in 2012, bet on himself, and then came back and had a better senior year than he had as a junior for Stanford? Oh, that showed some real guts by Mark Appel. And I was impressed by him for doing that. But that critique of him has not abated in pro ball. It has only been amplified by his performance. Nothing has gone right for this guy. He's had appendicitis. He's had tendonitis in his thumb, I think it was. But he's never been cut on for his arm or any kind of arm-related or injury-related to pitching. Just the appendicitis, which certainly people have come back from. He's just stunk. And I do think his inability to make adjustments is really telling. And our J.J. Cooper's been all over this. He's at JJCoop36 on Twitter. And J.J. has detailed it since he was in the Midwest League. J.J. talked to guys last year when he did the Midwest League Top 20. Um, Appel didn't qualify, but J.J. talked to pro scouts about him. They were like, eh. And he, he got Jeremy Guthrie comparisons last year, soon after Appel signed. And I've talked to amateur guys this summer who are asking me, what about, what about Appel this year? Because they all loved him last year. The guys I've talked to, like Aaron said, loved him last year. But the only times I've ever seen him, he hasn't thrown well. And for me in person... I saw him give up one of the longest home runs I've ever seen at Durham Bulls Athletic Park when his summer of his sophomore year when he pitched for the college national team and was playing against, I believe it was Japan's college national team. And he gave up, as we like to say around here at BA, a bomb. So he just gave up one of the longest home runs I've ever seen to a Japanese amateur player. And uh, he seemed not too phased by it, but it wasn't a great look for him with the college national team. And... Uh, you know, he's a very religious kid, and he's a very straight and narrow kid. And nice. And nice. And, you know, I, I remember Jack Hyatt for the Giants telling me, you know, Giants kind of like guys who are nice. They like, a, they like their players to have a little edge. They're not the only ones. Uh, he used more colorful language. But there are a lot of people in baseball who think that way. So maybe Mark Appel's got to get an edge, got to get angry. But, you know, it sounds like the stuff is flatter. The velocity's still generally there, but it just sounds like his stuff is flatter and he's just hittable. And he's having one of the epically bad years by a high draft pick. J.J. is compiling a running spreadsheet. And when the year's over, J.J.'s going to compare his performance in a historical context, and that's not going to be flattering uh, in any way, shape, or form to Mark Appel. And I don't wish him ill. I, I hope that he comes out of it. But we haven't gotten a great scouting report on him yet as a pro, and that's that's hard because usually we get a good report and we don't have one yet on him. Well, Leslie, I mean, you mentioned he was a top three guy, consensus top three guy between Bryant and Gray. Knowing what we know now, seeing how he's performed so far this season, where would he go if 2013 was redrafted? Where, do you think he would still go in the first round? Oh, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question because how much of this is the Astros? You know, last year, their first, uh, they were blamed for, well, he didn't adjust well. They were blamed. Well, he didn't really adjust well to the tandem starter system, you know, so that was part of it. But, I mean, you know, Austin Meadows, I love Austin Meadows. He went ninth overall to the Pirates. He's been hurt all year. I mean, who do, who do you think you can fix more? I mean, uh, you know, I, just, I think it's really tough to do the redraft one year out. But call me back in two years, and we'll, we'll see uh, how you'd redraft it. But, again, the amateur scouts I talked to this summer when I was watching the college national team, uh, when 
when uh, the conversation turned to Appel, those guys still thought pretty highly of Mark, of Mark Appel. And, and I'll, I'll say, too, that, you know, this is a guy that was a big-time recruit out of high school. Yeah. And he struggled pretty bad as a freshman, and he got a lot better, you know, and he showed aptitude. And, and he, whenever he had adversity in his college career, uh, I thought he responded pretty well. And, and you know, there were, there were doubts about him at times in, in his career about – um, is his fastball just too straight, too true? You know, he had velocity. You know, he always had velocity. But we're here in '96 is still this year, not as consistent as they were as an amateur. But that's that's common. Yeah, but I mean, it was it was, it was something that you heard about Garrett Cole in his junior year. You know, I mean, that was the the guy that um, I, I couldn't help but compare him to. They both went number one overall. But you know, Cole had a bad junior year. He did, and, and I think he went four and eight that year with a not great ERA, and, and his year was very analogous to Carlos Rodon's this year at Frenzy State. In fact, really worse statistically than Rodon's, because he was in the first year of the new bats, and Garrett Cole had a worse ERA against the new dead bats than he had the year before against the livelier bats. And you'd go in and see Cole as a junior, and you'd see ninety six to a hundred with a you know sixty five slider and a sixty changeup, and you say, well, how the heck is this guy getting hit? You know, and and. It's because the fastball was kind of straight and you know up a little bit, didn't have the, the, the pinpoint command of it. And then you'd go in and see a pelt, and, and he'd be 94, 98, you know, with a really good slider and could feel for a change up. It was very similar. Um, and, and he was better than Cole. But, but even so, there was that, always that reservation about you know, the fastball life and command. And so maybe that's, that's the key thing here. You've been listening to John Manuel and Aaron Fitt from Baseball America. Give them both a follow on Twitter and read their content at BaseballAmerica.com. John, Aaron, thank you both for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks a lot, Ross. My pleasure.